0: Hello everyone and welcome back to part three of the Nephilim Conspiracies, the transgenerational conspiracy to enslave humankind that begins before the flood and will culminate in the end time. Parts one and two took us up to the formation of the Knights Templar between 1090 and 1099 um, CE. And so we're gonna talk about how the Knights Templar are the core organization that sponsors the last thousand years of conspiracy and are the roots for the Rosicrucians, the Freemasonic group, the Illuminati, the Royal Society, the Jesuits, the Rothschilds, and the Knights of Malta today. But we're gonna begin with um, how the Knights Templar held all of the factions of this organizational structure that we talked about in parts one and two. So the first and most significant part are the bloodlines. And the bloodlines of the founders held the bloodlines of the princes of Jerusalem. And that's defined within the craft and Gnostic organizations as the bloodlines of King Solomon, the bloodlines of King David, the bloodlines of King Saul, and the bloodlines of Nephilim, and bloodlines as they claim, as alleged claims, that They have the descendants and the bloodlines of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, as we also talked about in in part two. And we talked about in part two how this came together in the Merovingian dynasty that was taken down uh, by the Catholic Church. But there was a survivor named Dagobert, who is the ancestor of some of the main founders of the bloodline, even though all the bloodlines that are involved are interrelated. The three main ones are de Bouillon, de Payon, and Anjou, and they are from the Lorraine region, which is also going to be important to understand as we move forward. And in 1118, Baldwin, de Bouillon's brother, was crowned king of Jerusalem as the Title for taking back and a reward for taking back of the of the uh, of Jerusalem by the Crusaders and this is a title that we need to understand moving forward and the title comes from the time of Joshua where Joshua gives the land to the Benjamites Jerusalem in particular the land that he's giving to Jerusalem is part of and that if you recall I had mentioned that these bloodlines take their bloodlines also back to King Saul who was a Benjamite, and so they're claiming that heraldic Right as the king of Jerusalem in 1118. That then flows forward to Anjou, who is also from uh, the Lorraine region and also part of the founding members. And this will be a heraldic title that we'll move forward that we'll come back to. This was an initiatory secret society. And it was a secret society that had a Christian veneer on the outside and a polytheist core at the depth level, where the Priory of Sion and the bloodlines and the adepts of that bloodline ran a secret inner core, whereas the lower levels were just doing the works for the leaders. And this organization comes out of the Middle East, first with the Assassins, who they worked closely, the Templars worked closely with uh, in in the time that they were in the Middle East. And the Assassins were a mystical polytheist organization that comes out of Islamic mysticism, the Sufis. So what they were was a group that had an Islamic monotheist veneer, and then again underneath they had this polytheist core. We also have a mixing in of the Ascenic belief system and organizational structure of the Essenes and the teaching of the Essenes as again one of those key aspects of this organization, just as the Essenes were the sponsors of the monastic orders of the West. And so we also have the third aspect of it, which was the Basilidians, which were Gnostics out of Alexandria, which gives them the sort of Greek philosophical side and the Egyptian religion side that's all intermixed at the core. And so they also worshiped Baphomet, and if they worship Baphomet, they worshipped other fallen angels. And Baphomet or Baphomet, depending on how you want to pronounce that, is a degraded goat god in the same image or order as Azazel and could be Azazel in, in their belief system. So again, we have this rebellious angel aspect. Templars also excavated at Jerusalem and brought back architecture, knowledge that revolutionized European architecture with the Gothic architecture. And that allowed them to get control of the builder guilds with full blessings of the Benedictines who had controlled the guilds before and were part of the founding of the, of the Knights Templar, as you'll recall. And they built monuments to their gods. Even though they were doing work for the Catholic Church, those churches are filled with iconology of their belief system. It's just, you know, everything from gargoyles to the seven sacred sciences. And they also developed within this order and working with the Benedictines' education within those mon- monastic orders and developing of the sciences within those mystery schools. So again, we we have that connection as well. And we also have um, this connection in terms of the religion that was had risen to power in and around at the time of the Templars in the same areas where the Templars were operating that the Roman church was looking to depose because they had become so powerful. And again, what we talked about in part two, these would be the Albigensians and the Cathars. So this was really the religion at the core that was being worshipped at at the Templar Adept level. And within that religion, they have A bloodline understanding and allegories which are consistent again to what we talked about in part one about the dragon bloodline, patriarchal bloodlines and the fairy bloodlines as being the matriarchal bloodlines and they believed in something called the elven bloodline. And this is also known as the for from where Albigensenian comes from, back to a certain matriarch or a certain patriarch. And this was the bloodlines of the tuatha Danann, the fairy bloodlines, as they were known, the fair folk. And as they trace their history back to Scythia and back to Samaria. So this has some ancient sort of... Uh, heraldic genealogies within the allegories intermixed, which is consistent with this organizational structure. And they also sponsored literature uh, throughout uh, their their reign, the reign of the Knights Templar, such as the Grail uh, and Robin Hood and many other uh, literature that was reflecting their history and their genealogies. Now their goal was, develop a universal religion centered in Rome and a world government with one leader that worked in partnership with this universal Gnostic religion. And they wanted to control the wealth uh, of the world and and the commerce of the world. And they wanted to pursue the pursuits of thought or the development of the knowledge in preparation for how they were going to partner with the, the fallen angels. So that is the... Uh, the beginnings of the organizations that we're now going to talk about that I mentioned on at the beginning. And at the fall of the Knights Templar, they wanted to make sure that they were not going to have one organization that was holding all of the power, all of the knowledge, and all of the wealth in case Christianity or the Roman Church or another force would rise up after that to again uh, set them back in their plans. And so in 1188, before the fall of the Knights Templar, we're going to begin with the rise of the Rosicrucians. And at 1188 is the cutting of the elms, uh, where the Priory of Sion, which are the bloodline adepts, are going to leave the Knights Templar because they believe they've lost their cause. This was uh, about a year after the Templars had lost Jerusalem to the Muslims. And this is going to be the beginning of a new Red Cross order, even though the Knights Templar are going to maintain the Red Cross for another 120 years or so. But this is going to be a new Red Cross new central red cross order that goes back to the order of constantine back to the knights of the east and west of darius and back to the royal arch masonic orders and the ones that we we covered off in in section two and so this is the beginning of the rosicrucians we see a little bit of visibility of this organization come about in 1327 with robert the bruce where he rewards Templars for helping him gain his independence by creating a Rosy Cross order uh, in, in respect for the help that he received from them. And then we see the full confluence of this, this sort of rising power that's kind of invisible uh, because Rosicrucians are also known as the invisible ones as well as the College of the Rose and Cross. Brotherhood. So when you hear invisible ones, invisible brothers, invisible college, this is a Rosicrucian term. And in 1397 the Rosicrucians are going to partner with Zygmunt the king of Hungary, to put the dragon kingships back on the throne because they're being pushed back and as we mentioned earlier you have the roman catholic church pushing back the religious aspects of the gnostics you have uh, a push back on the kingdoms that were supporting the gnostics and now the the rosicrucians and the bloodlines are going to push back so they form an, an order called the ordo draconis and this is the bloodline of the rosicrucians and it's also to continue the pursuits of Thoth. So again, we see this polytheist religion, bloodlines, and secret societies all working together to, to gain control. And in 1439, they induct Vlad III, who's son of Vlad II. And he's known, Vlad the Third is, as Lord Dacronus, and who the Dracula character, a.k.a. the dragon allegory, is based on. And he's also known and called an overlord or an Oberon of Scythia. And this is a Tuatha Denon term as well, because the Tuatha Denon take their lead lines back to, to Scythia. And so Oberon and Overlord is is the reason Shakespeare writes in Midsummer's Night Dream about Oberon being the king of the fairies, because again this is more of that Gnostic brainwashing. Uh, literature that is going to hold the history and the genealogies of, of the bloodlines and his wife is Titania which is a direct link to, to the Nephilim as well and so you have these this, this Order Draconis or the Sarconi Ron happening in around the early 1400s and what's important to note on that is is that that uh, Prince Charles of the English throne and bloodline, they take their bloodlines back to Vlad uh, III as well, and I have have a link for people if people want to hear what he has to say on that, or what he has to say on that. And so, this is very, very important because this is the group that is going to work with the Habsburgs, which are the most powerful dynasty uh, of that time. Uh, to, who are going to intermarry also with the Dukes of Lorraine, which we have the Habsburg Lorraine dynasty, which is now going to carry that King of Jerusalem title forward, uh, for, for many, many, many years. And so the role of the, Ro- of the Rosicrucians was is to ensure the religion survives to ensure that their history and their genealogies and their beliefs survive and to saturate literature with those kinds of writings just as the templars did just as the classics do just as shakespeare does just as we see about fairy tales and so much in the world today with reflecting their their allegories and their history and to organize and direct other groups that are going to report to them as being a pure blood group the fifth top 50% are pure bloods the bottom 50% are initiates coming up from the other lower levels of the secret societies even though they're adepts you have to be adept uh, to be a rosicrucian and they're going to be a conduit to the pure bloods who are going to uh, control everything that's going on so what we're learning here is is that not only do you have to understand the organizational structure the different parties but you need to understand the pedigree plays a significant part, whether or not it's in religious bloodlines, as in the black nobility within the Catholic Church or within the Gnostic religion or within the secret societies and or the kings and the rulers. Pedigree is the key sort of measurement in terms of how high you can go and how powerful you are. So after the fall of the Knights Templar, we're going to move on to the Freemasons now. They are going, you're going to have a, a fellow by Dumont who is going to lead the Templar fleet over to Scotland. And he's going to take Templar knights with them and some treasures and some knowledge. And he's going to fall under the, the protection of Robert the Bruce. And what's important about that is, is Robert the Bruce is part of the St. Clair bloodline. And the St. Clair bloodline is... Um, Goes back to Rollo and the gods of Odin and the Tuatha Denon that went to north to uh, Russia, to Germany, and into Norway and and into Sweden. And in 911, Rollo expropriates Normandy and settles with the French in a treaty that is called Saint Clair. And so the Rollo descendants are going to take that name, Saint Clair. What's important about that is, is the battle partner for. Who to pay on was Henry St. Clair. And w- the next thing to understand in terms of what's important about that is that 1188, Uh, at Geezer's, where the cutting of the elms takes place, the second Grand Master and the wife of the Geezer, who was the first uh, Grand Master, is Marie St. Clair. So we see this bloodline working all the way through, and it's the St. Clairs that are going to also help protect and sponsor the Templars in Scotland to form Freemasonry, and St. Clair is just the transliterated Scottish name for St. Clair. And so we see all of these things sort of coming Uh, in together again and we have this organization that is primarily formed to influence the military, influence politics and be a preparatory organization to bring uh, lower level bloodlines and perhaps new money and new talent into the organization so they are like a, an occultic school for new initiates, but to be part of the higher levels, you have to be an adept, which is third degree York, right, or 33rd degree Scottish, right, but that is only third degree on this sort of hierarchy, and I know of at least nine degrees, and some people tell me there's as many as 12 or 13 degrees, so third degree is 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 first level of adept. Which leads me in now to the uh, Illuminati, which is the next organization. And this was formed earlier on than what most people think from a group called the Enlightened Ones, which was an organization of scientists, uh, mathematicians, physicists, astronomers that were getting together in Rome and then were suppressed by uh, the Roman church for the, the knowledge that they were developing, which again was the seven sacred sciences. They seem to have resurfaced or been adopted into the Illuminati or the Illuminated Ones in the early to mid 1700s, again through one of these relationships of the German aspect that we we're talking about and the Teutonic aspect, which was again part of where the Templars f- fled to, uh, into Germany. And so this, resurfaces through the Bavarian Mason guilds, again another connection, and through the German nobility class to start the Illuminati. And then it merges with uh, Freemasonry in 1776 to 1780, depending on which historian that you're um, going to read on that. And it remains at the inner core of a depth level um, operating within Freemasonry and using Freemasonry for its operations. And so the Illuminati's goal is is to bring about world government and to destroy Christianity. And what they were able to do by merging into the inner part of Freemasonry is as Masonic lodges were set up into England and then to France and then all around the world with Uh, the expansion of the French and English empires they use those as bases almost as embassies and platforms to get into countries in the rest of the world to influence banking universities and their religions all for the goal of world government so that's the the Illuminati organization and as you're starting to see they all have specific goals and and things that they're doing here And this is important to understand the Rosicrucians and the Royal Society and that the Rosicrucians are higher in the hierarchy as they form the next group we're going to talk about, which is the Royal Society or the Invisible College, which again has that Rosicrucian term to it. So the Royal Society was formed in 1660 to 1662 with its charter, although it has some earlier formings before, but this is when it really takes shape. And it was formed by Rosicrucians and Freemasons, and it's designed to uh, develop the seven sacred sciences outside of the church everything that they're going to do is going to be outside of the church and to lead people away with the development of that knowledge and to not give god credit for anything and to discredit god just as they were doing in the antediluvian epoch and through all of the empires that come down through history and they wanted to develop the knowledge for the end times and preparation for when the angels are going would return and they would have their end time rebellion they also built monuments to their gods and their pantheons, just as the Templars did. Um, they wanted to, to, to provide the knowledge to be able to build those uh, uh, monuments, is, is more accurately said. And they wanted to use this organization to control education from the elementary through the universities outside of the church. So that's the Royal Society. And the next group that we're going to talk about is the Rothschilds, and they're formed, again, out of this German connection and out of the nobility, again, out of the Germans, understanding that the Windsors have a German bloodline. So again, all of these things are interrelated, and they're funded by Masonic organizations to do the same thing that the Templars did to get control of the banking and to lend money to to governments and and make money and control the wealth and commerce. And so in 1798, when the Bowers set up the London Bank, they changed their name to Rothschilds. Now their role was to replace the, the banking arm outside the church, which is an important distinction and to find a way to indebt countries through war so that they could control them and to ensure that they would control all of the banks worldwide outside the church and further down to use that banking system to set up organizations that could direct policy of the governments which came to manifest in the reserve banks around the world, which are generally owned by bankers and the Rothschilds or bankers subservient to the Rothschilds. And they also uh, were designed to fund globalist groups so that they could continue with the globalist cause. And that's why most of the banks in a lot of the countries don't pay taxes because they funnel their profits into these trusts Uh, and political groups, even though they may not be labeled as political groups, um, so that they don't have to pay taxes to further their cause. So that's the Rothschild banking arm. You also have now the Jesuits, which is a significant organization and, and one that people place sometimes a little bit too much emphasis on, even though they're very, very important. They're still created by the Rosicrucians. So I wanna talk about a little bit of history about the Jesuits and show how they work into this whole organizational structure. And in 1317, I'm gonna begin with Pope John Twelfth. He creates the Order of Christ in Portugal at the request of the King of Portugal. Um, and this is shortly after the fall of the Templars. And so this is set up so that all of the assets of Portugal, part of the Grail, a uh, country that was basically set up by the Templars uh, to, to control the a- the Templar assets within that organization. He also, Pope John XII, sets up an order called the Montessa Order of Aragon. And this is uh, the order that King James in the same year, King James of Spain, also orders all of the Templar assets are going to be controlled by the Montessa Order. So we see assets and knowledge being gobbled up by uh, corresponding bloodline kings to maintain what the Templars had. They're just reorganizing them as what we've been covering off. Now we're going to roll forward to 1527, which is a very important year. And this is a year when a f- person by the name of Francis Borgia takes control of uh, and grandmaster of this Montessa order. And he also starts to sponsor Ignatius of Loyola and his followers for the Jesuit society who are going to be formed into the uh, the Society of Jesus in 1540. But what's also important in 1527 is, is King Charles V, the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Emperor uh, of that time, is going to invade Rome and this is going to cause a collapse of the bank of rome at that time you know what's important about that is is francis borgia as uh, GM, Grandmaster of the Montessa Order, working for King James, and as a descendant and part of the Black nobility, because his grandfather was a Pope, um, also has significant Italian connections and within the church, and they're going to take the money and move it to Switzerland to be united with the other Templar money that went there at the fall of the Knights Templar. And this is sort of the the two sort of Key significant aspects, along with partnering with the Rothschilds to centralize that wealth and money in the Switzerland banks. So, in 1540, Julius the Third Pope, the Pope Julius the Third, creates the Society of Jesus and a mandate to be a teaching order to take control uh, as the guiding factor and do most of the teaching within. the the monastic orders which were Gnostic anyways um, but they get control of the education just as the Royal Society had control outside of the church. So we see this control working on both sides, inside and outside of the church. And in 1565 Francis Borgia again, the Grand Master of the Montessa Order, becomes the leader of the Society of Jesus, the leader of the Jesuits. And this is very, very important. And they recognize him as essentially the second founder. So this is going to be an expansion of the control and power of the Jesuit order. Because in 1572, Pope Gregory the Thirteenth grants Jesuits the right to the Roman church's banking and commerce. And what's important about all of this is, is you have the Jesuits now doing everything inside the church as what, the Templars did before and even an expansion where they are on the front edge of all of the exploration that's going to take place in the new world controlling the information coming out of there controlling the com- uh, the commerce and controlling the banking within the church And this is, again, very much a Babylon-type organizational structure that we see described in in Revelations, where it's not only a city, but it's a state, it's a religion, and it has control of all of the commerce. This is what they're trying to to set up. And the Jesuits were an order that... uh, believed in the seven sacred sciences and the Greek philosophies and the mystery schools of the Gnostics, and that is what they're teaching within their schools and in, through a lens of the scripture, which is the seven sacred sciences and the Greek philosophy. So they teach an interpretive approach to the Bible, which is a Gnostic approach. Now in 1587, you have King Philip II who takes over the Montessa order. So now you have the kings of Spain um, back involved here, which is very, very important because King Philip II also was the Grand Master of the Order of the Golden Fleece. And what's important to understand about that is is that is the same sort of organization and sister organization uh, that the Habsburgs were involved on and that king philip of spain today who has habsburg lorraine bloodline has the king of jerusalem title today and is from the habsburg lorraine sort of branch and bone bloodline so again we see all of these things connected so the role of the Jesuits was to take control of Roman Catholic education, banking, and commerce, and to pair Rome to become Babylon City from the inside and the Babylon religion from the inside. And today, uh, we have a Jesuit Pope, which is very, very important to, to understand. So as we understand that, let's now move into the Knights of Malta. And so the Knights of Malta were also known as the Knights of St. John. And just as Gnostics adopt Jesus and Mary Magdalene and Joseph of Arimathea, they also adopted St. John as a Gnostic and as a as a, and a scene. So the Knights of St. John and the Knights of Malta are the same organization. Just when they moved out of the Middle East, they took different names, depending on the location that that organization was located at. And so this was an organization that Templars also went into. And this was an organization that answered directly to the Pope, and it was represented within the bloodlines of, of of the nobility of Europe, so you had to be part of a pure bloodline, not the first one. it was generally the second or the third in line, and the whole leadership was uh, controlled by the bloodlines and is to this day, and the Grand Master would be known as a Prince of the Holy Roman Empire, to show you the rank, and the Knights of Malta, have statehood status and have treaties with 300 different treaties with different states as an equal. They also have permanent status with the UN. And their goal within the church was to create a new world order like that I like to call the new Nephilim world order uh, with the Pope heading it and to influence banking and politics just as we have the jesuit now controlling both where they had two separate arms by the pope now you have a jesuit black pope as he's called by nostradamus uh, which is the leader of the jesuits and an anti-pope as he's known in catholic prophecy as a replacement pope as benedict is still alive who has control of all of this that is preparing rome to become babylon and so when you understand these different factions of the organizational structure understand that Freemasonry is below the Illuminati, even though at the Adept level they start to join. You might look at the Bohemian Grove mixing in with uh, the Adept level of the Illuminati. Within the Rosicrucians though, this is the key aspect that, that links above. So you have the Bilderbergers, the Jesuits, the Royal Society, the Rothschilds, the Knights of Malta, the Club of Rome, all linking into the Rosicrucians and reporting to uh, the pure bloods, particularly these high-level organizations. Some of the lower-level ones may look after the lower-level organization of the Bilderbergers, example, which has the new money and has a visible meeting once a year. But the true bloodlines of the Bilderbergers are all royal bloodlines at the higher level. The Club of Rome is an organization we're going to talk about um, at length in part. Four, because this is an organization that is setting up how that 10 empire is going to happen. So above the Rosicrucians, which is 50% pure bloods at the top, you have the committee of 300, and then the council of 33, and then the 13 families. And so when you understand that pedigree is the key distinguisher in terms of what's above the secret societies that we can see, things start to fall in place and everything funnels through the rosicrucians so when we look at the modern organizations these are the organizations that are working today and then we're going to talk about in part four how they're going to bring about the end time a date with destiny that they want to bring on thank you